Welcome to Real Leaders Radio, bringing you the story behind the story of the most innovative, authentic leaders we know. And now, here's your host, Sue Heilbronner. Hey everyone, welcome to Real Leaders Radio. I'm Sue Heilbronner, your host, and I am incredibly excited to welcome our guest today, who is just one of the most talented, totally on-brand CEOs I've ever met in my life, Chris White with Shinesty, and you can learn more about Shinesty right now. In fact, turn this off and <laughs> open your browser and go to shinesty.com. And even if you don't buy anything right now, I can tell you for sure that if you're not on their mailing list, you're actually missing a true life highlight. Chris, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. We're actually recording this episode today right from the hallowed halls of Merge Lane, which is an the accelerator for companies that have at least one female in leadership that I'm privileged to, to be a part of. With a live studio audience. I know, that's yeah. true, live. Yeah. yeah, there will be laughter. That's actually, <laughs> and if you're here, there will be laughter. I know a good deal about your company. I want you to be sure we're going to tell our audience and also the folks from Merge Lane a lot about you. But I'd love for you to just start with the question I ask every guest, which is just Give us your two-minute life story. Um, yeah, so I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is like, actually, I grew up in Bixby, Oklahoma, which is like even smaller than Tulsa, Oklahoma. As you can imagine, there's not much in terms of tech or entrepreneurship in that city, or at least there wasn't when I was growing up there. I moved to the middle part of the country to play baseball in college at DePaul University, uh, which was great. It's a small liberal arts college, but it's totally in the middle of nowhere. Um, when I was... In my freshman year of college, some stuff happened within my family, and I was basically forced with the choice of either going to community college that I could afford back in Tulsa, which was like my nightmare, my hell, uh, or figuring out a way to pay for this very private school, which I'd found myself in very expensive, very private school. So I picked the second way. Um, and to, to finance my education, I sold kitchen knives. I don't know if you've ever heard of Cutco. Between that and a couple of other jobs, I paid for my entire education at DePaul University. Um, so that was kind of like my first jump into business. I guess you can call it business. It's more of just strictly sales, right? I would do the door-to-door thing, but I would also then travel around the country and show at fairs, at um, home and garden shows. And so I don't know if you've ever seen like the infomercials with the guy who's doing the chop, yeah. right? That was basically me, but with a live audience. So... I'd be like, have you know, you'd have the um, the microphone right here, and and you're talking, you're cutting, you're demonstrating the knives, right? And then you'd you'd flip it up and be like, oh, I'll make a special deal for you, Sue. I'll make a special <laughs> deal for you, right? Um, and so I did that. Yeah, that, that's how I paid for all of my school. When I graduated, I knew that I didn't want to stay in the Midwest. I wanted to experience something different. And so when I came to Colorado, I was like, Boulder. I was like, this is the place. Wow, like this is awesome. So I went to law school. I got a JD MBA from CU. Well, I started Chinese kind of midway through grad school. So I started it in, I guess when I met Sue, it was like December of 2013, right? Mm-hmm. And we had, Jens and I had just come up with the idea. We didn't even have a website yet. We had like a couple of really poorly designed PowerPoint decks and it was at Google's, Google what was it called? Next, the Google Next. Accelerator, the pre-accelerator. The pre-accelerator. With accelerator an within an accelerator, yeah. Um, and so we met at Google Next and, you know, like Boulder is very awesome for software companies. Uh, Chinasty is not a software company, nor has it ever <laughs> wanted to be. It has no part that's not in our DNA, right? We're a brand. Chinasty is a brand. Um, so when I'm sitting there telling Boulder entrepreneurs and Boulder uh, advisors and lawyers and investors about the idea for Chinasty, people should see the looks on people's faces. They're just like, 
Well, tell what? them what the idea for Shinesty just real quickly so they understand this part of your story. Sure, 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 sure. So Shinesty, basically we sell clothing for events. Anything from your ugly Christmas sweater party to 4th of July to St. Patrick's Day to Mardi Gras to your 80s party to music festivals. So it's anything where you're with your friends partying essentially, right? Anytime where people are drinking and getting together and partying and having a good time and hanging out, that's what Shinesty is for. The good times that you have with the good people in your lives. Basically, I show up at this Google Next thing, which they ask people to be, you know, mentors, which happens every other day in Boulder and every third day you say yes. These guys were seriously cool. They, they had some really ugly Aztec fleeces on that they yeah. liked but did not think were ugly. But yeah, we had a, <laughs> we agreed to disagree on that. And, and since then, I've been proved wrong. Um, and they show up with this crazy idea. And then I recall that the next week or two weeks later, you guys had a live website, right? Yeah, and right. right. That, was, that blew my mind. Right. How did you do that, and how did you start Shinesty? Because if you look at Shinesty.com today, it doesn't really look like it did that day. I, I just taught myself, right? I just learned what I needed to learn. Um, I didn't, like, take a class or anything. It was just by necessity. Uh, so I literally looked up how to do this, how to do that, and built it. Where did you start with, now you have a lot of apparel and you have stock and yeah. you have sizes, but talk a little bit about where you started and I really how kind of lean startup principles sure, sure. figured into your thinking. Yeah, so the idea was always to be event wear, right? Event driven. But when Jens and I started the company, I was in grad school. We didn't have any money. I think we started it with like maybe eight grand, $8,000. So one way that to test uh, the entire business model and what we did which is why a lot of people thought we were crazy at first, because this will never scale, this will never work, right? Is that we used vintage clothing. So at first, everything we were selling was vintage. And that was awesome because it let me go out and pick really cool, awesome products from the 80s and 90s that I could find at thrift stores, estate sales, and test a certain category or a certain type of product without having to spend 10 grand to do a manufacturing run on a piece of apparel. It also let us test a lot of different categories. So we got to test a ton of different themes uh, quickly and easily without having to spend any money or any resources on product development, manufacturing, anything like that. And how did it go in those early days when you were picking up stuff at Goodwill? What happened in the first two, four weeks of having this website live? We sold out of everything. To be fair, we didn't have that much on there, but <laughs> like we sold out of everything, right? Because we could just go out and source the sickest most absurd 80s and 90s like apparel that maybe for people who are a little bit older, they, they think of that as like vintage. But for people my age and people who are younger than me, they think of it as like retro and that's just like cool, right? It's just a cool style. Uh, it's trendy right now. And so that's, that's what we did. So I think that the reason you sold out everything in your first two weeks, which really got my attention uh -huh. about you guys, <laughs> they are the single best merchandising photos you will ever see anywhere <laughs> on the internet. And that was true from the first day. Maybe talk about how you did those photos, who you used, because I think you still do that. And also, how in the world did anyone find out about you? You didn't even exist. How did you Yeah, so I guess let me back up a little bit and right. talk about kind of like where the idea for Shinesty came from. So like I said, I went to school at this really small liberal arts college. It's a great school, but it's in the middle of nowhere called Greencastle. 10,000 people maybe live there. 4,000 students, so like there is nothing to do. There's a Walmart, Long John Silver's, and a Subway. That's all you got, right? But DePaul's really interesting because it always somehow ends up in the top 10 party schools. It's like Colorado, University of Georgia, Penn State, DePaul. So you're like, two for two right. on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I didn't think about that. Yeah, you're right. Um, and so 
people are like, what the hell? What is DePaul? What is this little school? Um, and the reason, I think, is just because it has a culture, uh, a social culture around partying that is very inclusive. And, like, it's only 4,000 kids, but all 4,000 kids party together. It's not like at Colorado where, like, your fraternity is segmented. It's like everyone hangs out together. Um, and because of that, you know, there's a lot of partying, a lot of socializing. And you can't just party and socialize, right? Like, you have to take it up a notch every now and then. So there's so many theme parties theme parties every single week, like something different, something cool, something weird, unique. Um, and so by the time I graduated, I had this like massive walk-in closet full of like the most ridiculous, absurd, everything from an 80s ski onesie to a uh, Ronald McDonald costume to, you know, like any, anything you can imagine, a, a legit like 1975 army outfit. So I had everything. I think they call that a uniform. Uniform, yeah. uniform, right. <laughs> so uh, we had just so much fun around themed parties and events and I spent hours searching through Goodwill and on eBay so I was really good at that like vintage hunting was fun for me and so when I graduated I kind of gave it all away and I was like you know I, I'm gonna grow up be a real professional now right I don't need any of this stuff and then I got to Colorado and I realized like why the fuck did I do that now all of my friends have jobs so we can afford to like fly to Burning Man and we can afford to go to Mardi Gras and we can in New Orleans and we can afford to go to NFL playoff games we want to go to but now we don't, none of us have time to like search through thrift shops and search through eBay to find really cool party apparel because everyone wants to dress up and look good, but no one has the time to do it. So most people just end up going to a Halloween costume shop and looking stupid, wearing cheap Chinese shit that just is garbage. So then when I was in business school, I got a piece of advice. It was that if you really want to be successful in entrepreneurship, find something where what you're really good at crosses over with what you really love. And so for me, what I really loved was this whole, these events and socializing and meeting people and partying and looking awesome. And what I was really good at was this like snarky, sarcastic branding. I'd also during college worked for a screen printing company and I had done these designs for fraternities and sororities. And I had come up with a unique skill set because I realized when I was in school that if I made a t-shirt for a fraternities party and I just said beta party, whatever, spring party 2016, I'd sell 50. But if I made a t-shirt with a beta spring party 2016 and then put a sexual innuendo in there, I'd sell 300, right? So I'd gotten really good at, at kind of being snarky and being sarcastic and uh, just being really irreverent. And that's kind of where the brand came from. So the, when those two things cross over, it's easier to be successful. Um, and so that's kind of where the idea for Shinesty came from. You had, yeah, you but went out, you bought this vintage stuff. Still want to know, like, how did people find out about you when that first stuff went live on the site with those incredibly snarky, hilarious photographs? Um, so people found out about us mostly through social media, right? Mostly through Instagram. Um, we weren't doing any paid stuff. It was all just through organic Instagram, Twitter. It was really the content that was driving it because it was so outrageous and absurd for a company to talk like this that people wanted to share it with their friends. We'd post one thing. We had maybe you know a thousand followers at the time who were just our friends. And then they would share it and it would just keep going viral. And this seemed to like happen over and over and over again, where every time we posted something, and it was just very aggressively sarcastic, right? To the point where some people were offended by it. But that's that was great, right? Because the uh, people who loved it, loved it 10 times more uh, because it was so authentic. And that's kind of how it started. And that's how it spread. And then we started 
messing around with some paid ads. Uh, so we spent like $10 maybe on Facebook <laughs> a day, 10 bucks. Like the first time we did it, we were like, oh, this is kind of scary. We're locked into a $100 spend here. Uh, and, 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 and we do it, and, and people who hadn't heard about us, didn't know us, would see this ad and just be like, this is absurd. This is so ridiculous. And they would share it. And so we were getting like, for every one person we paid for to see it, we we're getting like nine people who were seeing it organically just from the shares and the comments and people talking about it. And that was just driving it up into people's news feeds on Facebook. But you asked about the, the merchandising photos. And so for that, when we first started and actually still today, we don't use models. We use our own employees, our own friends, our family. Um, and that's because our photo shoots are just parties, right? So when we'd start, our, we'd make our photo shoots on Friday nights or Thursday nights, and we'd just, like, get a ton of beer and get drunk and take pictures and have, have a good time. Um, and you could see that in the pictures, right? That was just because that's us, right? That's what we wanted to do, and that's what we wanted to convey. And it reminded us of the good times with the good people in our lives, and that's what we wanted the brand to convey to other people who saw the website. So you had this vintage thing. You guys were doing all the buying yourselves. Mm -hmm. And then you sold everything out, which, you know, great good news, bad news scenario. Number one, like from my perspective as an investor, that gets my attention. Uh, we had one of our speakers yesterday allude to this with the Merge Lane crowd. She basically said, wait a minute. So if somebody launches and in two weeks they get a million users, I don't even care what they're doing. I want to talk to them. Right. And that was really my experience with you guys. Like, I mean, obviously I was not going to random St. Patrick's Day parties and dressing up for those. That wasn't really my life experience. But I could see that your personality, the messaging that you were putting out, the way you were presenting yourselves as a brand was just so aligned. And it was just unstoppable, which is really what you alluded to, sort of mm. passion and talent coming together. So you were vintage. You sold everything out. What did you do next? Uh, so next, then we were like, shit, we got to figure out a way to way to handle this. So to scale the vintage out, we went out and hired people in Portland and Seattle. Um, and we did it on commission. So we basically would just give them $200 budget. We didn't pay them. Give them a $200 budget. They'd go out and find stuff. They'd send it to us. And then we'd pay them once it's sold. So that let us like scale out the vintage. And then we went out and found, we tried to find really unique brands that were either international or didn't sell through uh, any stores already. And so it was really unique, weird stuff that we could either take and show to our audience or we could re-merchandise and change the way that it was branded. So one example is Roper. It's a really big company in Denver. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but they're a Western company, right? So they'll sell like Drysdale's or like these Western retailers. It doesn't look like anyone here shops at. Uh, but being from Oklahoma, I knew them. So we went out and found some of their stuff, and we just took their product and re-merchandised it. And but what I mean by that is we took pictures in a different way. We wrote copy in a different way, and we sold it to young people, right? And it sold out. Uh, so that was kind of our strategy was to either find products that people didn't know about because we were really good at letting people know about them or products that could be merchandised to another audience. They just hadn't tapped into that because that wasn't their brand. We went to all these weird trade shows all over the country in the most weird places and tried to find the smallest guys, right? We went out and tried to find the guys who couldn't afford a booth and, and didn't have any displays because we could see the product and we could see the promise in that product and we knew that that product would do really well with the young 20s type crowd. I recall that October of 2014 stands out to me as the high in sales per month. So October is that number. And I just want you to talk a little bit about what November and December were as a multiple on your best month ever yeah, of 2014. Yeah. Um, so November was like 500% growth. And then 
December over October would have been like 1,700%, I guess, 17x. Before I get to how that happened, how much business in relation to the business that you did in November and December did you have to give up because you didn't have enough inventory? Oh, yeah, yeah. Then probably like 75%. Oh, you had to leave December. on the table. Yeah, yeah, you left on the table. So what happened? In those two months. Yeah. So uh, really is when we first started experimenting with uh, paid acquisition. And it was just, again, driven by the content. So this is when we started the $10 thing. Uh, and we were like, you know, let's try this and see what, see if it works. Like, oh, I don't know. Should we spend money on that? It's kind of, kind of crazy. $100. Uh, but we did. And it was insane how viral it was. So like we'd post an ad for $10.00. And it would get basically five hundred dollars worth of ad spend, had we spent that that much uh, organic traffic would come from from the ad. So that happened and continued to happen. And then blogger would see it and write about it. And then uh, a bigger blogger would see it and write about it. And then I get on an airplane. I was like at my girlfriend's uh, family's house in Indiana. I'm flying back, and my mom texts me, and she's like, "Hey, you might want to get ready." And I was like, "Get ready for what?" She's like, I'm pretty sure Al Roker just talked about Shinesty and pulled up the website on the Today Show. <laughs> and I was like, what? No, mom. It, it was someone else. Like, come on. It wasn't us. Like, that's ridiculous. And sure enough, I, like, looked down at my phone. And it's like, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> so we get off the plane, like, all excited. And then I look at the total number. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Because it was just me, Jens, and Michelle. And we were, like, we were sitting in my bedroom. I still remember we were sitting in my bedroom at my apartment. And, like, just looking at each other. And there's probably, like, 30 minutes where we just were, like, (laughs) (laughs) what the fuck are we going to do now? Like, how do we fulfill this? Uh, So we essentially had to, we called our moms. (laughs) My moms flew out. Uh, Luckily, they're stay-at-home moms, so they flew out and to help us package they literally stayed for like two weeks to help us package. <laughs> it broke our inventory system. Um, our inventory system crashed, so we like oversold by like 500 <coughs> units. And that was within like, that was in like six hours uh, on that day. So that was wild. Totally And that crazy. led to tons of other stuff just like it, right? Yep. I mean, you guys were all over the place for a couple weeks. Yep, yep. So that just kept happening and like... Esquire was writing about us, and GQ was writing about us in negative lights, which is hilarious. Good for us, either way. Just every blog and every news outlet was, like, writing about it. It went viral, like, legitimately the definition of going viral with a press story. So, and we did nothing. Like, I did no, we've done no PR, no uh, paid media outreach. We just literally made some funny shit. Around about 2015, in the middle of the year, I recall we sat down and had a conversation. And the nature of the conversation was about how to think about holiday 2015. It was difficult to try to plan for holiday 2015 because, you know, your your email list, I mean, what's your email list today? Do you share that? 70,000. 70,000. So it was already, like, just hugely escalating. So we sat and we were talking about like how to think about holiday. And I'd love for you to just share what was going on for you and your partner, Jens, who you guys have been co-founders since the beginning. What was going on with you in terms of your risk, reward, discussion, and calculus about how to think about that? Yeah. So we were like basing it on last year and thinking about like, okay, like what if we double it? Ooh, that's kind of scary. That's like... (laughs) Scary because you had to buy inventory. Yeah, yeah, we had to buy inventory, right? So uh, it's a... 
it was a big number. We were like, oh, this is a lot of our cash. We were nervous, right? Like, we are puckering up a little bit. So we we ordered, like, as many as we thought we possibly could afford with the, our, the cash we had on hand. Still really scary, way more than we thought. And unfortunately, all that sold out before. This is holiday. This is Christmas-type products. And Hanukkah. Tell me about and Hanukkah. Hanukkah. And Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Hanukkah as well. God. Sold out before the month of October was over. And none of it had even landed in our warehouse. So we didn't even physically have it. And we sold out of every unit, all of it. Uh, so we doubled it again. We ordered more. And that was probably as much as we could get that fast leading up to the holiday. And we sold out of all of that, too. And that was November 15th. So talk about, I'd love for you to talk about growth and what that's been like for you as the CEO, uh, how big the company is now, mm -hmm. what the growing pains have been. Yeah, so the company now in terms of people, we have 20 employees. I think last, when we started, so 2015 in January was when we made our first hire. So we had four people January of 2015. We take our time and we hire really slowly. So we found awesome people and our team's freaking amazing, but um, it's hard. It's really really hard and the most challenging thing by far has been when you sell a physical product is the operational perspective so uh, ops customer service fulfillment is really hard to grow that fast to grow 1400 percent year over year is very very difficult so when we first started we had like this thousand square slice of a thousand square foot warehouse that this lady was nice enough to let us just we we're like ah oh, thousand square feet's a little much for us i don't know and she was nice enough to be like okay I'll, I'll segment this off for you you can you can just put some tape on the ground and you just use that side uh within like six months after that we took the whole six thousand square foot warehouse over but it's really challenging finding people to pick and pack finding people to answer phones uh to give the level of service that we want to give to our customers, which is exceptional, right? Like everything we do, we want from the time that they see our website or they're introduced to our brand for the first time to the time they get their package or if they have to make a return, they make that return to be a positive and also hilarious experience. That's hard to like scale that experience out. Um, and so that has by far been the most challenging thing, specifically around the holidays. We did a analysis of customer service, how many customer service agents we should have had based on number of tickets. <laughs> and we should have had 10 from October through December. We had one. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> basically every single person on our team was taking six hour shifts at some point in the day doing customer service. and Including graveyard. You had somebody on Yeah, call we had graveyard. graveyard yeah. yeah. It was 24 hours a day. So I've been to your current warehouse. Uh, mm -hmm. And at least as of the last time I was there, you had no heat, no air conditioning, no indoor plumbing. How have you created so many happy employees and the culture you've created where even though there's no heat and it's friggin' 10 degrees, people are still excited to work for your company? I think it has a lot to do with the people that we are and that's the culture that we wanted to establish was a culture that's exactly like the brand. The brand is funny, it's irreverent, sarcastic, it's a party. And those are the people that we went after and that we wanted to hire. So we made sure that no matter what happened, no matter who we have to hire, they have to, have to, have to fit in with our culture. And they have to, we have to, have to, have to want to be able to get a beer with them. If we don't, if I wouldn't go camping with this person or I wouldn't go on a drive more than 20 minutes with this person, like even if they're the smartest, most qualified person in the world, like we're not going to hire them. And I think that it's, it's not necessarily anything that we've done on purpose like setting standards or setting rules like that it's just that we've hired people who 
are this culture, right? That's naturally who they are and they love it. And when they're around other people who are like that too, it, it makes it a party, right? So like Shinesty is a family. If you want to have a job or you work nine to five and you leave and go home and don't see your coworkers till the next day, you're not going to like working here because we go to happy hour together. We play softball every week together. We party on the weekends together. We go skiing together. Like we do everything together. Our friend network is very much internalized in the company. Let's talk a little bit about fundraising. You're probably one of the most irreverent brands in the United States, like by definition. That's a, that's a good compliment. You like that? Yeah, yeah. yeah I knew you'd like that. Um, <laughs> so how did it go? Talk about your first fundraise and your second fundraise and just lessons learned and what the experience sure. was like. So the first one was like pre, I think maybe we just had the website. It was very difficult, but at the end of the day, like it was our families and our friends and they were like, you know, I know Chris and Jen's. Personally, I've seen them. I know their work ethic. I know they're uh, intelligent guys. So, like, I'm just going to bet on them. We did that. Then we had the big holiday season. And then... So, wait, wait. Okay, hold on. So, you went home, right? Right, right. right. I went to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where, like I said, not exactly the tech tech capital of the world. Very oil and gas. Or the irreverent capital. Not exactly the irreverent capital. (laughs) Not exactly the style or fashion capital of the world, either. (laughs) Great people. Amazing people. Just not exactly New York City. Um, and yeah, so we went home, I, I went home and met with people explaining the idea for Shinesty. Again, same looks, like, just dumbfounded looks on people's faces, like, you're gonna do, what? You're, okay. Uh, so I, I managed to convince enough people who had seen me and knew me, uh, since I was a kid to give us a little bit of money. And, and you didn't hit your target for that round, right? No. You thought you might, but then somebody backed out at the last minute, mm-hmm. right? That would have allowed you to hit that number. Your second experience fundraising, how did that go? Very similarly, right? But we were talking to different people. So we were talking to angel investors in Boulder, uh, a few like small seed funds. And same thing, people just like, ah, great performance in December. But like, I think it was just because you got a little PR. This seems like a fad to me. I'm out, right? And this was like in February, right? Including VCs who had chased you, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Including like VCs who had called us in December when we were having like all this press. This is in February, I think, when we started. And some people kind of hung around a little bit and our sales were just doubling every single month. And so finally by April, I was like, all right, you're either in or out. Eventually people were like, wow, like it has actually doubled every month. So, okay, I'm in. It was tough. We It was a really low valuation. We had to sell people on it. Yeah. yeah. But it's just important to note that you can have a phenomenally successful company and still for various reasons struggle with fundraising. Just good to know that, that fundraising isn't everything. Building a great company is, is way more important. I think the next time you go out to raise money, and some of that discussion I know is happening now, uh, I imagine it's going a little bit easier. So much easier. I mean, from the same, from like that. So it's now it's like that crowd, the friends and family crowd, the second time, so easy. Now the angel crowd, everyone's in. So now it's the VC crowd, right, that we're approaching now. So one of the things you did is you decided to finish law school. You were taking exams, and I recall, uh, I'm sure you had a lot of conversations with your quote-unquote rabbis during that time. Mm-hmm. How do you feel now about your decision to finish school? I'm, I'm still kind of torn on it, actually. It worked out fine, but it, the, it was a struggle, right? Like, uh, I was in the top 10% of law school for the first two and a half years, and then uh, I got, like, C's my last semester, which is, like, which, I don't know if you know law school, but that's as low as you can possibly get because there's a curve. So you can't get lower than that. So that was, like, hard for my overachiever soul a little bit. At the same time, I knew that what I was doing 
with Shinesty is more important for me. So as we sit here now, going into your second full yeah. year, yeah. what's the thing that keeps you up? What's the thing that scares you most, if anything, about where you are right now? What scares me the most is right now is like operationally getting to that level where we're comfortable scaling up and down. Because having operational problems is really hard because you have to let people down inevitably, whether that be your employees or your customers. You know, when you're first starting out, you don't have to think about any of that. You're just like, how do, can I... Is there a fit here? Do people want what I'm making or do people want what I'm doing? Uh, and that is that is the most important thing. You shouldn't think about ops at all when you're getting started. Then so once you have that and you've, you've established that, yes, this is working, then like the systems become important because, you know, selling to 100 people is way different than selling to 10,000 people. Um, and that totally changes everything from uh, you have to have stuff in place so that when you hire someone, you can plug them in as opposed to being like, I'm going to hire this really smart person. They're going to figure it out. Uh, that works. You still have to do that, but you have to have some systems in place at least so that you can somewhat scale the operations. Chris, what are you most proud of about what you've built? The team, for sure, without a doubt, 100%. Just because of the way that we've grown, we haven't like had the luxury of being able to hire experience. But what we have had is the luxury of being able to hire really freaking creative and really freaking smart, awesome people. So I've gotten to see... 23-year-old kids go from college to like getting written about on big email blogs. A big email company wrote a blog and said that whoever writes Shinesty's copy is the best copywriter in the country right now, right? And that's a 23-year-old kid. So I'm going to ask you to just look at your own stud-ishness and tell me like what's the thing about you that you think makes you a uniquely strong CEO? I think it's the authenticity. What I'm doing with Shinesty is just me. I created a brand that was like about my life and had I had experience in and I loved. And that was the most important thing and I think that that comes through in everything I do. Well, this is Chris White from the company Shinesty. I've already told you that I have absolutely no objectivity here. I, I am an investor. <laughs> we are anticipating that Mergelane will make an investment in your company in your next round. We're already in discussions about that. Uh, I just want to be sure the audience knows one more thing, which is why Mergelane is planning to make an investment is A, because you're awesome, but B, what's the ratio of women in your executive team? It's like 70, 75%. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Chris, for being here. And thanks for joining us on Real Leaders Radio. Thank you for joining us at Real Leaders Radio. To hear other episodes of this podcast or learn more about Sue Heilbronner, visit us at realleadersradio.com.